Welcome to Table Lore, a storytelling podcast providing background lore for tabletop role-playing games or a podcast to fall asleep to. Whatever brings you here, we're just glad you're here. I'm your co-host, Megan. And I'm your other co-host, Cass. Before we begin, remember that Table Lore is a fictional storytelling podcast, and while sometimes we will explore real legends, nothing we say should be treated as fact. This week, we're going to Tennessee. Hey, Gus. Hi, Megan. What's up? Oh, I'm just feeling a little tired, but a little excited for our road trip tomorrow. Yeah, we're recording this podcast way later in the night than we had intended, but we want to record before we leave, so. Yeah, where are we going, Megan? Yeah, we're going on a road trip to... Want to give us a drum roll, because this is super exciting. Oh, I would, but I don't know how to, like, roll. (laughs) Kansas! (laughs) And Nebraska. The two most exciting states in the continental U.S. I think the two perhaps most middle of the West Midwest states. I'm not sure. Feels like that. I think the two states with the most corn in them. Ooh, what about Indiana, though? I feel like Indiana Indiana does have a lot of corn. I think most of the Midwest is just corn. Well, I'm excited. I've never been to Kansas nor Nebraska, so it'll be good. We're gonna yeah, w- you're going to several new states on this trip. I've been to some of these states before. Oh, well, we're also making a pit stop in Denver, but I've, I've been to Denver. It's very cool. I've driven through Colorado before. So does that count as being to a state? I think so. Okay. It's different from just flying into a state and only having gone to the airport. That does not count. But I think driving through a state definitely counts. Okay, well then I'm going to say that I have been to Tennessee because I've driven through Tennessee. Oh, I've actually been to Tennessee not just driving through. Oh yeah, what did you do in Tennessee? When I was like 13 or 14, I went to Nashville with my dad to go to a wedding of one of his best friends from high school. Do you remember any of that? No. Okay. (laughs) I remember walking around like the downtown area and there was like a big park. Yeah, I wish I could say I remembered more of that trip. I think it was a really quick trip and I don't think we really did much touristy anything there. Well, that's okay. But Dolly Parton lives in Tennessee, so that's pretty cool. Oh. That's the fun fact of Tennessee, I guess. That's absolutely fun. We love Dolly Parton. So, Cass, what did you learn about Tennessee while we were researching for this episode? So I learned about some pretty interesting lore. It seems like one of the biggest stories in Tennessee of folklore is the bell witch haunting oh what's that well apparently there was this family who lived in northwest tennessee 19th century so the 1800s mm-hmm. and apparently this family was haunted by a poltergeist that could speak to them affect the physical environment even become visible and like its appearance could shapeshift so 
real quick, can you explain the difference between, like, just a ghost and a poltergeist? Well, my understanding is that a poltergeist is a malicious entity that can impact the physical environment. So that's the type of thing that will, like, move things or displace things or ones that you could, like, even hear them speak to you. That's creepy AF. That's very creepy. So I guess, yeah, in the Bell Witch Haunting, the poltergeist killed the dad of the family, John Bell, who was actually, like, a member of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, so I don't know, maybe if that's the only American politician who's died by spirit, but interesting. Probably not, but, like, maybe. Maybe. So, yeah, that seemed to be the biggest folklore that i was reading about that's a pretty good one yeah any other facts about tennessee or did you learn anything cool about tennessee tennessee is nicknamed the volunteer state that's really endearing i don't know why i actually didn't look into like why it's called that but love that love that for tennessee we love volunteers on the surface it's very charming yeah surface level seems great Mm mm-hmm below the surface level we never really know tennessee is still part of the appalachian region so the great smoky mountain national park is in tennessee you listened to last week's episode we were part of and part of appalachia and georgia so we're still in a similar region this week yeah, we are. You know, Tennessee does excite me. I think we'll have to go someday because the Great Smoky Mountains is the most visited national park. So that probably means it's pretty good. Oh, we'll definitely go. Good. I'm counting on it. Megan, will you please set the scene for us? I would be delighted to. This week's episode takes us to Thurnbridge, Tennessee, which is a fictional town located in the southeastern corner of Tennessee. So imagine lots of lots of forest, just old old trees lining everywhere. Uh it's early spring during the time that our story takes place. The date is March 25th, 1987 to be exact. Well, we have to be exact. Yes, and this is a stormy night. A dark and stormy night. No, that's too cliche. But it is actually a dark and stormy night. Oh, continue. Thunder rumbles as the door to Rick's bar opens, rain pouring loudly outside. A tall woman in a dark green raincoat shivers through the doorway and shakes the water off of her coat before hanging it on the rack by the door. Her hair, a vibrant candy blue, glows in the infrared lighting. Someone shouts her name, Bev, from across the bar, and she makes her way to join her friends, Terry and Andrew, sitting at a dimly lit table in a quiet corner. Terry is a middle-aged woman who looks exactly as Bev remembers her, Short, dirty blonde hair tucked under a ball cap, skin too tanned to be a night shift worker from Tennessee, 
and Andrew, who was barely 19 when they first met, fresh out of high school working his first full-time job. He had a lot of ambition, but now he looked like he was 40 and all that youthful vibrancy had disappeared. Bev felt sorry for him and wished that there was a way to erase the past and return the life he lost. But the truth was, Bev was just the same. Today was her 30th birthday, and every year she feels more and more like a ghost. Terry slides the pitcher of beer, half empty, to Bev before anyone can say hello. Andrew sinks further into the booth, and Terry clears her throat before asking, Have you seen it yet? Andrew, the youngest of the group, shakes his head, no. Bev shudders a little as she explains she'd just driven by. Terry announces that the distillery, which all three once worked at together, will reopen in the morning for the first time in six years. They asked me to come back, you know, she adds. Andrew sits up in disbelief. No amount of money ever could get me back in there, he barks. There wasn't enough money in the world to get any of them to go back. Terry rolls up her sleeve, revealing a massive burn scar on her forearm. They never found the body, she mutters. The trio sit in silence as they recall that night, exactly six years ago, when the Thomas Reed Whiskey Distillery burst into flames, nearly killing them all. And is that... what is that? Those were flashback noises. Oh, goodness. Terry is the first one to clock in on the night of March 25th, 1981, which isn't unusual given that she's the shift lead. She reaches for her clipboard, usually hung next to the time clock, but her fingers brush the wall instead. Looking around, she finds it on the floor and curses the previous shift leader under her breath for being so careless. She reads through the previous shift notes, then walks to the boiler room to begin her routine inspection of all the equipment. A few second shift workers are still finishing up their task list, and she greets them. As she passes a small group of them, she catches one of them talking about an air vent that got stuck somehow. She sighs, rolls her eyes, and stops dead in her tracks. Which air vent, she demands. The group hesitates out of embarrassment, then tells her it's in the barrel room. As soon as she hears this, she braces herself for a long night. By the time she finishes inspection, the rest of the crew has arrived and begun their shift. Terry calls everyone to the staff room for a team meeting and hands out assignments for the night. She picks her two most dependable staff, Bev and Philip, to help her with the vent, and they head to the barrel room right away. So this is a whiskey distillery, right? Correct. Can you just give us a sense of what this place looks like? Yeah, so the Thomas Reed Distillery is located in the fictional town of Thurnbridge. Population about 14,000, so pretty, pretty big. Thomas Reed, the person who opened this factory and the namesake of this whiskey. Fictional, right? Uh, entirely fictional. Yeah, definitely not based off of anything real. Oh, got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Thomas Reed first began producing whiskey in 1879. 
The building that all of this is located in is a narrow four-story brick building. The roof has started to turn green from age. The bricks are weather-worn, like white and black streaks in some places. It's old, but it's like, it's charming. It's charming. There's a retention, like, cooling pond that surrounds the building, which the property itself is rather isolated from the town, which is very intentional, very standard in reality, in real life, for whiskey factories or any kind of alcohol production locations. Um, So why is that? It's to prevent any fire that could happen and the distillery from spreading beyond the property because anywhere alcohol is being produced is extremely flammable one wrong move and the whole place is just gonna blow up basically okay well we don't want that no so safety is top priority in all of these places makes sense yeah So in a distillery, there are a few essential parts. There's the still house where all like the grains are stored and some of the equipment happens where the processes begin. There's the boiler room, the masher, and the fermentation tanks. So in our factory, the boiler room is separate from the main area, which is where like the masher and the fermentation tanks are housed. And the still house is also separate. Okay. So the building is wide, tall, but still relatively compact. I mean, all these things are housed together in the same building, just separate rooms. So everything's compact. Um, And the most essential area of all of this is the barrel room. And that's where all of the barrels of whiskey will be stored after the fermenting process is complete. Um, So all the whiskey gets poured into barrels to begin the aging process and then is loaded up into storage racks in the barrel realm. Okay, so is that that pretty typical distillery? Sometimes. Some of, like, the larger distilleries will have a separate storage location off-site. But some of the smaller production factories will have it all together. It just kind of depends on the brand. Sure. Yeah, so the barrel room is going to be on the far right side of the building and is just one giant big open space. And I mentioned that this building is four stories tall. Um, So this room, it's open from the main level floor all the way to the roof. So you can see up four stories in the same room. And it's just like barrels floor to ceiling. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, like, a lot of gaps between the tops of the barrels. The barrels probably stack up two stories tall, but there's a lot of room for ventilation because as the alcohol, like, as the whiskey is aging, alcohol vaporizes into the air, and that's why, like, ventilation is really important, and that's why this room is very dangerous because, I mean... One flame and the whole thing goes up. So there's a lot of safety precaution, like observation that has to happen in these kinds of rooms. Um, Anywhere in the factory, 
a lot of danger at pretty much any given time, which is why generally there are very strict rules about open flames and like electrical work, anything that could potentially cause a spark. And in the 80s, this is much less regulated than it is today, but it still means safety is top priority. Okay. So with all that said, we know that anywhere in a whiskey distillery, workers need to be on high alert and attentive. So luckily for Terry, her staff has always been very dependable. She's the kind of boss who knows how to put people in their place kindly and who gets a lot of respect for it. On their way to the barrel room, Terry splits off from Bev and Philip, telling them she'll go grab a ladder. She heads to a storage closet, the one she knows has the better ladder in it, and unclips her green carabiner keyring from her belt loop. Despite there being several keys on the ring, Terry notices immediately that her master closet key is missing. She tilts her head back with a frustrated groan. Why would someone else take a key off her keyring? A thought slips into her mind of the stories she has heard about a presence in the distillery that workers blame for shifting things around, misplacing small items, and for the random cold spots that some people swear they have felt, usually in or around the barrel room. She thinks back to her out-of-place clipboard when she punched in today, but surely that was a human error. There are no such thing as ghosts. At least, she really hopes not. She rubs the back of her neck and uses her walkie to call for the janitor on duty. Beryl, meet me at the north storage closet on floor two, please. My key is missing and I need you to open the door. Over. A voice crackles to life over the walkie as Beryl responds immediately. Roger that, Terry. I'll be right there. Uh, over. Beryl is tall and skinny, the type of tall and skinny that makes all of his clothes look like they're swallowing him at any given time. He has been trying for several months to grow out his mustache to make himself look older, but the scraggly hairs just make him look even more like he's just 19. He pushes a cleaning cart in front of him as he steps out of the elevator onto the second floor, struggling a bit to keep the heavy cart wheeling straight. Obviously, his name at birth wasn't Beryl, who we're talking about is Andrew. Andrew is nicknamed Beryl because on his first day of work at the distillery, he accidentally knocked over some empty barrels that were being delivered. This is a huge no-no at the distillery because barrels are obviously the most important ingredient in whiskey making. And had that been a full barrel, he probably would not have his job anymore. Um, And so he's never heard the end of the barrel joke. So Andrew is eager to open the storage door for Terry and tells her, It's funny you mention your key being missing. I've been noticing that every once in a while, something of mine ends up somewhere. I didn't leave it or be gone entirely. I lost my spray bottle last- Thanks, Beryl. That'll be all. Terry interrupts before changing her mind quickly. Actually, I know it's not on your list tonight, but how about you come up with me to the sixth- But how about you come up with me to the fourth floor and lend an extra hand fixing this faulty air vent? Just leave the cart here. Andrew, ever happy to please, does as he is instructed secretly hoping to make a good impression and make up for his first day mishap. Bev and Philip have already walked into the bear room 
And as they walked into the burial room, they inhaled the sweet scent of the angel's share, which is what distillery workers refer to as the scent of alcohol vapor in the air. The scent is always subtly there. However, Bev notices immediately that the broken vent is preventing proper ventilation from happening in the room, which makes the scent stronger than normal, which means there's more alcohol in the air than usual. She nudges Philip's arm and they and says that they need to get working ASAP. Philip nods in agreement and radios Terry to tell her to hurry and get to the barrel room. There are two large air vents on the north-facing wall that cycle air from outside the building, and six slightly smaller but still very large vents scattered on the ceiling. Upon first inspection, it's clear that the two vents in the wall are functioning, but vent four in the ceiling is not turning. There are walkways accessible from the fourth floor to help them reach the vents, but it's still going to be tricky to fix it. Terry and Andrew walk through the doors as Bev and Philip debate the best way to get to the vent, and Terry decides it's better to try rooftop access first. So she tasks Andrew with unlocking the upper walkway doors, warning him not to touch anything except for the door handles, because she doesn't trust him around the barrels, while the rest of them head outside to climb up the ladder attached to the side of the building to get onto the roof. Up on the roof, they can clearly see a dead bird has somehow become lodged in the fan, preventing it from spinning. Philip uses a screwdriver to work it out of the fan gently and scoops up the carcass, wrapping it in a handkerchief from his pocket. Terry gets the fan going again, wipes her hands, and stands up to head back down. Bev sits next to Philip a moment longer while he hides a little tear falling from the corner of his eye. Bev knows Philip has a deep love for animals and that he would probably go find somewhere to bury the bird once they get back down from the roof. The three of them head off on separate tasks after fixing the vent, Terry to continue monitoring production, Bev to check on the stills, and Philip to clean out the charcoal shed and bury the bird. The next few hours of their eight-hour shift go off without a hitch, and sometime around 4 a.m., Philip hears laughter coming from the barrel room and goes to investigate. When he walks in, he finds Terry and Bev deep in conversation about the hubbub some new employees have been whispering about. Sorry, the hubbub? Yeah, you know, like the hullabaloo. <laughs> yeah, because that's better than hubbub. Yeah. So Bev turns to Philip as he walks in and says, What do you know about the ghosts? Philip chuckles before stating that he's never seen them, but others definitely have. Terry tells him about the missing keys, joking that if there are ghosts, they seem to have it out for her tonight for sure. Philip notices that Bev's laughter seems a little less genuine than Terry's and makes a mental note to ask her about that later. He suggests they go find Andrew and hear what he has to say about the keys, that if anyone's playing a joke, it's probably Beryl. Andrew is mopping the floors of the tasting room, his Walkman blaring electric light orchestra through his headphones, and the sudden entrance of Terry, Bev, and Philip startles him, and he drops the mop onto the floor. Hey, Beryl, gags up. Give Terry her keys back, Philip demands. Andrew defends himself, saying he has nothing to do with that. Which, if they're being honest, all three of them already know this, but it's far easier to blame Andrew than it is to believe in ghosts. 
though. They joke around about it for a few more minutes until Andrew gets too frustrated for it to be funny anymore, and Harry says, well, it just must be ghosts then. Andrew seems to turn into one after hearing that and asks what she means by ghosts. They're all surprised he hasn't heard yet, and Philip begins to explain the legend of the Thomas Reed hauntings. Dun, dun, dun! In 1917, the Thomas Reed Whiskey Distillery was in the midst of renovation to expand due to increased demand for their product. Prohibitionists had been protesting the renovation of the distillery for several months and were growing increasingly threatening to construction workers and members of the Reed family business. On November 8, 1917, a group of radical prohibitionists confronted Thomas Reed during a visit to the distillery. The confrontation escalated into a verbal altercation until one particularly brash prohibitionist threw a punch at Thomas. Seeing this, one of the construction workers pulled out a gun, aimed it toward the group of prohibitionists, but Thomas grabbed his arm, interrupting his aim, and the gun went off the bullet striking an innocent bystander, a young man who had been lingering on the sidewalk, watching the scene unfold. Seeing the innocent man collapse enraged the prohibitionists, who then began physically attacking the workers and Thomas Reed. Police came and broke up the fight, but late that night, some of the prohibitionists returned to the distillery and started it on fire. Not knowing what they were doing, however, the prohibitionists started the barrel room on fire, which exploded, killing two of them. Their bodies were never recovered, and the renovation continued, unknowingly trapping their bodies and souls in the building forever. The spirits are angry and vengeful, and Philip doesn't go any further with the story, because another employee interrupts to inform Terry that the vent they fixed earlier is no longer working again. She sighs and emotions for Bev and Philip to follow. This time they use the walkways to check out the vent, but can't find any evident cause for the breakage. Terry sits down on the metal walkway, her body leaning against the railing and her legs dangling off the edge. It's old, probably just needs to be replaced, she decides. This vent has been breaking weekly for the last several months and Terry is over it. But they need to get it running again somehow, at least for the rest of her shift, and then it can be somebody else's problem. Bev and Philip continue tinkering and trying to force the blades to spin manually, but it refuses to budge. As this happens, the main level door is open and they see Andrew come spinning in with his mop and headphones. Terry shouts, Barrel! to get his attention, and after a few tries, he removes his headphones and responds, You still want that promotion? she asks. And he does. He wants the promotion. Terry says, Get up here and see if you can get this spent working then. Andrew immediately runs to the stairs and climbs the four floors in no time, still gripping the mop. He remembers Terry telling him on day one that there is no running on the walkways, so he doesn't. But as he walks towards the ladder, Philip still on it, both hands occupied attempting to fix the vent, his brow furred in concentration, Andrew, tall and clumsy, steps on the yarny end of the mop, stumbles forward, and falls into the ladder. It happens so fast. Terry and Bev hear it before they really see it. 
the metal ladder clanging into the railing of the walkway, Philip pitching over the edge, falling, falling, 40 feet, before the sickening sound of his body colliding into the concrete floor fills the air. Harry and Bev stand in shock and disbelief, staring straight into each other's eyes, too afraid to look down, knowing what they'll find. Andrew's hands grip the railing as he looks down, mumbling, no, 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 under his breath, his breath shaky, eyes wide in horror. Suddenly, the air temperature drops, almost as if it were prompting them to move, and with weak knees, Bev, Terry, and Andrew descend the stairs to aid Philip's broken body. All three teary-eyed and Terry full of rage, they know immediately Philip is dead. Get out of here now, Andrew, before I kill you too, she growls between clenched teeth. Andrew scurries out the door audibly weeping, leaving Bev and Harry alone with Philip. Harry suggests they call for an ambulance, and Bev kneels next to Philip's body, tears dripping down. Harry kneels next to her and breaks down. In the 19 years Terry had worked there, nothing like this had happened. She never imagined anyone could die on her watch. She blamed herself more than anything, and the guilt was destroying her. How would she tell Philip's family? How could she make that phone call knowing what she had to say would ruin their lives? Her sobs rattle her, and she shudders. The lights begin to flicker, and the hum of electricity buzzes louder in the women's ears. That same coldness that engulfed the walkway moments ago is once again encroaching on them. Not a calming coolness, like walking into a movie theater on a hot day, but coldness like brisk January air that burns in your throat and causes you to gasp. Terry looks quizzically at Bev. What the hell? Bev is gripping Philip's hand, but is looking up at the ceiling, terrified. Terry glances up and can see that the air vent they spent all night trying to fix is spinning again. Terry feels a puff of cold air in her left ear, and an indistinct muttering makes the hair on the back of her neck prickle. What the hell? Terry stands up, shaking her head as the lights surge one more time before shattering, sending the distillery into complete darkness. What? No. Nope. Bev, come on. Bev, we've got to go. Terry tugs at Bev's shoulder. Suddenly, a loud boom echoes through the room, and then another, and another, barrels at the far end of the room exploding. Bev, we need to leave right now, Terry shouts. A glowing orange light sparks into existence and a flame begins to swiftly engulf the back row of barrels, the heat causing more and more of them to explode. The muttering in Terry's left ear returns and she can now make out a voice sneering, get out. Terry and Bev grab Philip's body the best that they can and try to drag him out of the room, the fire blazing faster and faster. They race to exit before getting caught in the blaze, and just as they are about to shut the exterior door, Terry feels something grab her arm and yank her and Philip's body back inside. Bev catches Terry's shirt and Terry falls back outside. Layers of skin on her left forearm are sloughing off 
darkly white, leaving the shape of a handprint. And is that sonically displeasing noise the noise of taking us back to present? Returning back to present day. Okay, I presume. Flashback over. Great. (laughs) Andrew stares at Terry's scar, large tears dripping from his eyes. This is all my fault, he cries. Terry reaches for Andrew's clammy hand and squeezes it. I thought so too, for a long time, but now I know. She wipes away a tear before asserting that none of this was anyone's fault. This was all because of those damn ghosts. Bev clears her throat and says, We have to stop them from reopening the distillery. Everyone agrees, and they exit the bar together, headed in the direction of the distillery, prepared to do whatever they must to stop it from opening. Megan! Cass! We just told a story about a distillery, which we totally spent a good, what, hour looking up how they work on YouTube? We really did a lot of research. Neither of us knew anything about how whiskey is made, but now I feel like I know too much. We could probably open our own whiskey distillery at this point. Hopefully a significantly less haunted one. That would be ideal, yeah. But if it was haunted, what would we name it? Like purposefully haunted whiskey distillery. No, it would absolutely be the Spirits Whiskey. Oh, the spirit room. And that would be like... I think that's already taken, but yeah. Okay, something like that, right? Something, yeah, because I mean, you know how whiskey is a spirit. Yeah, I do know how whiskey is a spirit. Damn, that should have been how we based our entire episode. Just one big, large pun. Well, I mean, maybe... Never mind. Erase this whole episode immediately. Wait, why? Because we did it wrong. Oh, we have to start over and redo this. we have to start over. (laughs) Shall we just go ahead and roll a D100? Megan, what kind of dice are we rolling today? We have the teensiest, tinesiest mini dice because we're traveling and we couldn't bring a whole D100 with us. Yeah, so we have our teeny tiny mini dice from our favorite local game store that Megan will be rolling. Yes, I've got a percentile and a D10. Here we go. It's going to be the tiniest roll noise. Are we ready for this? Let's hear that Foley work. That tiny clattering was the sound of 58. Ooh, Megan, you know where we're going now? Where are we going? To New Hampshire. New Hampshire? To the Shire, Bilbo. To the Shire. (laughs) Excellent news. I shall see you there. I will see you there. (laughs) Stick around for some game-playing suggestions. Okay, storytellers. Now it's your turn to create the rest of the story. Roll a d6 for inspiration on how to continue the story. If you roll a 1 or 2, it's 1920 and the distillery has completed reconstruction after the prohibitionists set it ablaze. But, with new prohibition laws, the operation happens illegally with the help of the friendly neighborhood mafia. You and your party play as a group of distillery workers who encounter the unfriendly prohibitionist spirits shortly after the reopening, which quickly escalates into deadly consequences. 
What happens here that is covered up by the Mafia to keep this operation running? If you roll a 3 or a 4, you and your party play as Terry, Bev, and Andrew, who have decided to drive back to the factory tonight. What do they do to stop the distillery from reopening? Are they successful? Do they encounter the malicious spirits again? If you roll a 5 or 6, Bev, Terry, and Andrew's effort to stop the factory from reopening have failed. And now, years later, someone else is murdered. Tell the story of what happens. 